man, I just, sometimes those hymns just, uh, they just land, you know. It makes me forget, you know, some of the nonsense that uh, I usually use to start off to just kind of break some of the nerves that, you know, when I come up here. But sometimes it doesn't completely work because I know last week I uh, offended some folks with the way that I spoke about Butte. Um, and so I do apologize-ish for talking about Butte. Um, I was thinking that maybe I could just not, you know, I could just apologize and leave it there. Uh, but I was in Great Falls yesterday. <laughs> so I'll just, uh, you know, turn my ire a little bit uh, to the north of Butte. And uh, what is so great? I just don't see it. Anyway, <laughs> I'll apologize for that next week. But I just started referring to it as just not so Great Falls. Or maybe it's my morale. That's what it is. When I go to Great Falls, my morale has such a great fall that maybe that's why they call it Great Falls. But, and also, those, those falls are not that big. Who saw those falls and said, those are great? I mean, what, what kind of life did they live? We should pray for them. But also pray for me. Um, I apologize to all those that uh, hail from Great Falls. Um, I'm sure the city is lovely, and uh, I, just, um, I just need something to start me off, and, and I just picked on Great Falls today, so um, I do apologize uh, also to Butte. So now uh, we, can get to, uh, we can get to the point, what we're here for. Last several weeks, uh, we're going through the, the Gospel of Mark together, one of the four books that begins the New Testament that records the life and ministry of Jesus um, Mark gives us a unique look into two important parts of this narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. First, Mark demonstrates the ways that Jesus defied social and cultural norms, the way that, that Jesus defied religious traditions and religious leaders, the way that Jesus even defied civil authorities. But also, the gospel of Mark is unique in the way that, that, that Mark demonstrates the way that Jesus suffered for that defiance. So, using Mark as a guide, we can extrapolate the example of Jesus and we can align our activities with his. We can see what he does and we can do likewise. Now, when we're able to do this, when we're able to see what Jesus does and do the things that Jesus does, we find that we stand in defiance of those same social and cultural norms that exist today in the, in the same way that they did when Jesus was in ministry um, on, on earth. Um, also, defiance of religious leaders and traditions, religious leaders and traditions that, that, uh, that exist today, in some cases, even civil authorities. But as we defy, just as Jesus did, we also recognize and prepare for the hardship that comes from defying all of these cultural, religious, and secular authorities. So as we witness the example of defiance flow from this missional work of Jesus, we always see him do this in a way that we have to take note. We see this defiance come always for another and never for himself. We see that his defiance was not about comfort. His defiance was not about safety. His de defiance was not about secular prosperity. It wasn't about ambition or pride or worldly security. 
the defiance of Jesus wasn't even about getting his way. It was always done in submission to the plan of the Father. It was always done for the life of others. So what we see here is a paradigm. The paradigm that emerges is that his defiance was not about gain. His defiance was about sacrifice. So we have a good metric that comes from this new paradigm. A metric of gain versus sacrifice. This also is going to help us see the difference between religion and relationship as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see a couple of examples today of Jesus defying religious leaders and religious traditions. But even in this defiance, this isn't about gain, this is about sacrifice. In this defiance, Jesus will also make clear the what and the why of his defiance. The actions become more clear as we unpack the narrative today. Religion and the religious spirit that can and does motivate and influence Christians even today is more interested in not doing things than doing things. And this is where we start today together. A religious spirit is more interested in not doing things than doing things. Religious spirits are at play whenever the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Always. When we're focused on the wrong thing, it usually is due to a religious spirit. Rather than placing the emphasis on doing the stuff that Jesus did, a religious spirit will place the emphasis on what religious law tells us not to do. This is the world that Jesus was in ministry in. We need to look no further than the Great Commission that ends the, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. We need to look no further than that Great Commission, the final instructions that Jesus gives us before he ascends to heaven. We need to look no further than that to see that he left stuff for us to do. And so that our focus ought to be on the stuff left to do rather than the things that we shouldn't do. Rather than placing the emphasis on things we shouldn't do, our emphasis ought to rest on what we were told to accomplish in the name of Jesus. It takes no more than reading through the Gospels to see how Jesus interacted with religious law and with the way that Jesus leaves that example for us we now know that we have two things that we can put together. We've got a job to do, and we have an example of how to do it. So you can join me in Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 23. <clears throat> One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. 
But the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. There's a gravity to what Jesus just said. There's a gravity to this interaction that's really easy to miss if we go through the gospel at a quick clip. If we slow our pace down, we see that, that Jesus and his posse are traveling. They're traveling between the ruckuses that, that Jesus is causing. They're moving through the countryside from ruckus to ruckus. And they did what was clearly permitted in Jewish law. They were eating grain from the grain fields as they went. This was allowed. This kind of flows from, from a religious law of generosity. It's found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23. Was not theft, even though it wasn't their grain, because they're not using harvesting tools to get the grain. And also, farmers were encouraged to, to leave some for, for those that, that might be in need. And so there was a little bit of generosity going here. So what they're doing isn't necessarily wrong or even like a cultural issue. This would be pretty typical for people traveling through the countryside that they would eat the grain as, as they're going that would be left for them to do. As long as they're not using a tool to harvest it, then they're, they're in the bounds of, of what is okay with the law. But there's a pretty major problem with this. Now, on the one hand, we see a really good example of how a community takes care of a community, right? Like leaving some grain for, for the people that need it. That's a really good example of a community taking care of a community. But what is happening here? A major problem. They are doing this on the Sabbath. Ooh. Very bad. Very bad. They're doing this on the Sabbath. They're doing this on a day that the Lord commanded to be set apart commanded to be set apart from the rest of the week. This was a day of worship, a day of recognition of the created order of God, a day that was for nothing else. This was a religious day. It had become a religious day. This, though, is a day that when observed with a heart of worship actually brings order into daily life. Another way to say that is when Sabbath is kept as a worship activity rather than as a foundation of, of controlling um, what to do or not to do, we experience the created order of the creator God. When Sabbath is about worship, We see order as an outcome. We even see one of the Ten Commandments is to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Remember and keep holy. 
we're told to keep it set apart. How we keep this set apart, especially in the time of the day of Jesus, the how is kept set apart had become the realm of the religious spirit. The Jewish community over centuries of religious development had identified 39 verbs that could not be, uh, uh, you could not engage in any activity that would be defined by these 39 verbs. You were breaking the Sabbath if you did one of these 39 verbs. Jesus engaged in a lot of verbs. Jesus was very verby. But when you engage in the verby life on the Sabbath, you tweak the religious spirit. Jesus engaged in a lot of these verbs, and in so doing, in the eyes of the religious, he and his tribe are in clear violation of the law. They're breaking the law. Because they're breaking the law, they're also in position for the consequences of the rule breaking. Now, the religious typically are very used to having power. And they can exert the power by pointing out simply that a law is being broken. And so they try that. They respond with basically a religious, I'm telling. Now, if you have siblings or kids, you know the power of I'm telling. You know, that, that is actually something that, that, that depending on um, your maturity level, you know, it might actually bring you back to like a little bit of post-traumatic stress from your childhood when your sibling says, I'm telling, and you know that you're about to feel the wrath of, of, uh, of something. This is a religious I'm telling. And they actually, the religious say I'm telling because they, they really do and are used to holding the power. They have the power in this community. They likely expected, when they called Jesus on, on this, they probably expected that Jesus would stop in his tracks, realize the gravity of what he's doing, but also the gravity of what he's leading his tribe to do. He would recognize his transgression. Then he would submit to the power and authority of the religious leaders he would submit to the power and authority of the religious tradition and he would stop verbing. He did not. Jesus takes their law and forces them to examine it. He points to an Old Testament story, one that, that he knew that they would know well one found in 1 Samuel 21. Here's a quick summary of what's happening in 1 Samuel 21. David is fleeing for his life, and he comes to the tabernacle in Nob. He gets there, hungry, being pursued, and he goes to the priests and he asks for food. They don't have any food for him. He and the men that he's leading are starving. 
And so after hearing that, there are, that there's no food available to them, he goes into the tabernacle and he takes 12, 12 loaves of bread that are placed on a golden table and he distributes it amongst his men. But those loaves of bread are placed in the tabernacle as an offering to God. This is presented as a gift to God, an offering to God, only for God. This bread also would be, would be replaced every week. And as a part of this religious tradition, as the bread was replaced, those 12 loaves that, um, that, that were left on the table all, all week would go to the priests, and only a priest could eat the bread. And so first, while it's on the golden table, it only belongs to God. He can't touch it. After that, only priests can have the bread. David saw food and people in need of food, and he met the need. Now, the religious would have no problem with what David did. They understood what David did. They understand the point of the story. David took the bread to feed his men, and Jesus is showing that that scripture, he's showing this scripture, he's showing 1 Samuel 21 as a precedent in which human need takes precedent over religious law. What Jesus is doing is not the first time in recorded history where human need has trumped religious law. Now, in doing this, Jesus does not have a bad attitude towards the law. That he, he's not being a rebel in, in doing this. It isn't that he had a bad attitude towards the law. It's that he had a correct understanding of why there's a law in the first place. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people. That's what he said. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people. Not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So we have to think about this, even taking a, maybe one more step back and ask the question, who created the Sabbath? Well, God created the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath to meet the needs of the people. God didn't create the Sabbath for the people to serve the Sabbath. That we see clearly in verse 28, what we just read in Mark chapter 2. And th this is something that we have to allow to land because that point changes the course of human history. That's not a minor point, what Jesus just made. That God created the law to serve people. He didn't create people in order to serve the law. The law, from the religious side, is often seen as the thing that we're here to serve. And even the way that we create this, the, the law in terms of, of civil authority, the law is something that's there for us to serve. If you think about, about how religion is, is leveraged over people, how, how it's weaponized, as a way to control people, religion is weaponized when the law is something that we serve. 
So Jesus is destroying this paradigm, and he's clearly stating that the law is designed to serve us. This is a revolutionary way of thinking. The law is designed <coughs> to serve and preserve relationship, order, and wholeness. The law is not meant to be served by humans or used as a tool to maintain power over a collection of humans. In verse 28, he makes clear, Jesus does, that he has the power to break this paradigm and he declares himself Lord even over the Sabbath. This attitude to the law defies religious tradition. The very practice of religion that had evolved over time is destroyed by what Jesus is presenting here. Now, Jesus accepted the authority of the Old Testament law, but he saw himself and he presents himself as coming to fulfill the purpose of that law. Religion is not compatible with the relationship with God. And that is clearly what we are seeing in this defiance. Religion is not compatible with the relationship with God because religion doesn't even require a relationship with God. Religion doesn't require relationship. It requires ritual. Religion doesn't require relationship. It requires repetition. Consider this from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 29. And so the Lord says, these people say they're mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Man, that lands. When we read that from the Old Testament, from the same God that created the Sabbath, isn't it interesting that, that the Sabbath actually ever became something that we serve? In the gospel written by Matthew, in terms of his relationship to the law, uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 5. <clears throat> Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the, the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And so if, if the religious side has created this realm of, of honor with their lips, but their hearts far from God, in their, in their attempt to serve the law, what Jesus is doing is he's coming and abolishing that, that way of thinking, that practice, and saying, no, the Sabbath, the law serves people. In order to see the purpose of the law, we have to understand what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 2. The law is not meant to be served. The law is meant to serve. This is a pretty important theme for followers of, of Jesus to understand. This is how we avoid weaponizing the gospel. This is how we avoid honoring with lips and with a heart that's far from God. 
Now, if we take an example from David in, in 1 Samuel, and then again from Jesus in Mark chapter 2, perhaps the best way to use sacred things, the best way to use sacred things, whether it's bread offered to God, sacred things like a Sabbath that is to remain set apart, maybe the best way to use sacred things like these is for compassionate rescue of people rather than metrics to judge people. Maybe the best way to utilize sacred things is to do the stuff that Jesus did rather than use them as things that, that show people how far they are from actually measuring up. Maybe our use of sacred things ought to be to demonstrate the love of God rather than the work we have to accomplish to be in that love. Now for this to be activated, we have to actually kind of take a step back and, and look at what the word holy means. Why this term defined as set apart as it applies to the Sabbath. Um, how could this be used as a mechanism to demonstrate God's love? How can we use the word holy, this religious word holy, to demonstrate the love of God? Rather than use holy as a metric of something that we have to attain, what if it was just a demonstration of God's love? Holiness really is a good way to describe God's love. Holiness, this is the love that sets us apart. His love through us that becomes compassionate rescue for those that, that are not aware of this invitation to be set apart is an example of how all of this can be worked out. The process of making something holy, the process of making something sacred is the religious word to consecrate. The reason I struggle with that is because when I was young reading that, I always thought they misspelled concentrate. And so I thought that what you had to do was just think really hard. If you want to be set apart, if you want to be holy, if you want to be loved by God, just think really hard. And that mistake is actually a good metaphor for what it's not. So when I was little, I would read this and I would try to think really hard about Jesus. And it didn't work. It just made my head hurt. <laughs> to consecrate. To make people, things, or times, or places sacred for God to use isn't about my effort. It's not about how I can concentrate. It is a requirement of a holy God, but it's also not a product of my own effort. You know, when we, we read Leviticus 20, we see, so set yourselves apart to be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep all my decrees by putting them into practice, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. There's a lot to this. First, I am the Lord that makes you holy. Well, the Lord is what makes me holy. The Lord is what sets me apart. If, if I become sacred to God because God chose, <coughs> excuse me, to make me holy, <coughs> I'm actually going to use this for the first time. This bottle of water has been up here for like a year. 
Oh, there we go. We're back on track. Leviticus. Back on track with Leviticus. Uh, I am the Lord who makes you holy. Not my own effort. But then we see there's something that, that also comes alongside this. The Lord that makes me holy, the Lord that sets me apart, but also keep my decrees. How do we keep the decrees? We keep the decrees by putting them into practice. Not follow them as repetition. We don't follow the, decree, the decrees as ritual, but we put them into practice. But again, how, how do we actually do that? This has been maddening for me because I feel like I'm, I'm following a trail and I'm telling myself this isn't about my own action, but I keep seeing that there's some of my action involved in this. What is this? What's going on? In Romans 6, we see some clarity from Paul as he writes to the church in Rome about how we keep the decrees. How, do we do, how are we putting this into practice? Romans 6, Paul writes, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. But wait a minute. If you've been paying attention to me, then you know Right now, you've caught me because I just contradicted myself. That sounds like behavior. How long have I been talking about this is not about behavior? And I just said this is about behavior. What I just did was a contradiction of myself, which means everything that I've ever taught is null and void. <laughs> Feel free to, to stop listening to me now. I've contradicted myself, except... While we're on this path of trying to figure out what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to keep the decree? Now we can add to this, well, what does it mean to do right? Do what is right for the glory of God. What does right even mean? Especially if we're going to follow this thread that it is not about behavior. What does right mean? <clears throat> If we take the meaning of right as it was intended, that word right is not a word about behavior. It's a word about relationship. Do what is right is saying be righteous. Not like some of you hippies said back in the day. I guess kind of like you hippies back in the day, but do what is right, righteous, what that means is serve relational order. Righteous means to be in right relationship with something. So what we're seeing from all of this is that we are called to allow the law to serve the mission of God through righteousness if the mission of God is a mission of reconciliation and we keep these decrees with righteousness 
then we start to put all of this together and see that the law was actually meant to help us serve each other and maintain right relationship. The law was meant to help us to live in the created order of God and serve his his mission of reconciliation. The law was intended for us to be served as an entry point to serve. And so now we're back to this place of we get to give. We live in the created order of God. We see him glorified as we operate in the way that we were designed. We serve each other and we're served by each other. And in all of this, the only way to describe that is righteous. But again, there's still this question of how do we do this? Paul writes this in Romans 12. So dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. That even puts a different spin on serve and be served if we look at what Jesus did to serve. But that's just Paul talking, right? I mean, if this is really going to be serious and we need to see something more than just the words of Paul. So how about Peter? First Peter 2, we see he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you're healed. So all of this defiance in Mark chapter 2 really points us to what Jesus came to do for us. If that's what he did for us, and if he is teaching us that the law is meant to serve humanity, then the proper response is to do what he did for us, not as repetition and ritual that demonstrates religion, but as an act of love that demonstrates an act of love. The use of a verb so powerful that it changes our very nature and and what we become is, is what saved us. We become about compassionate rescue, the same compassionate rescue that we experienced. We become about compassionate rescue rather than fear and contempt. The law serves humanity and Jesus fulfills the law. That's the point. The law serves humanity, and Jesus fulfills the law. Mark shows that that Jesus takes one more step in this defiance, one more step in this story that's going to begin to present the consequences of living in this new legal paradigm that the law is meant to serve us. That takes us to Mark chapter 3. 
Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, This is such an awesome question. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? More to the point, and a question that that I think really ought to land on the way we present the gospel to the world around us, is this day. Or is, is your religion is this day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. Is our religion to save life or is it to destroy life? Do we use relationship with Jesus as a way to bring out relationship with Jesus or Is this a way to show people how wrong they really are? Is our relationship with Jesus about bringing life? Or is it about showing another how how destructive their life truly is? He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot to kill Jesus. Jesus noticed that there was a man. He's worshiping with a man in the temple, a man that needed compassionate rescue. Jesus puts this paradigm in front of the religious people. Is the Sabbath a day for doing good, or is the Sabbath a day for doing evil? Does the Sabbath serve us, or do we serve the Sabbath? Is it a day to save, or is it a day to to destroy? So, for us, in observing the things that Jesus chooses to defy, looking at the gospel of Mark from this lens of defiance, we're left with a question that flows from the defiance of Jesus. Is what we call our faith, the very way that we choose to follow Jesus, the very reason that we are in this building together right now, Is it about ritual or is it about service? Are we serving a ritual or is our presence together serving the mission of God? 
Ritual tells us that you can behave in order to belong. All you have to do is come here and act the way everybody else does. But service testifies of compassionate rescue. It testifies to the fact that at one point I wasn't here, but somebody loved me enough to bring me here. It testifies to the fact that you belong, not because you behave, but because you exist. And when that invitation to belong is accepted, the change that follows that accepted invitation is complete, total. Behavior, no longer an issue. So are we about ritual? Or what or are we about service? What are we doing here today? Ritual or service? Why are we here now? What are we going to do when we leave here? Did we honor the ritual? Did we honor with our lips? Did we check the box of the Sunday ritual? Or do we see that the compassionate rescue that was offered to us is an activation for the compassionate rescue of those that we're going to meet in the time between the Sundays. So are we here for ritual or are we here for service? Do we get in order to get more? Or do we get to give? Ritual or service? Together, we can consider the fruit that these produce the fruit of ritual, and the fruit of service. We can examine that fruit together. And as we examine that fruit, we can discard ritual and continue to step into service. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would release the gifts of your spirit. We ask that you would come, make us aware of your presence here. Make us aware of your presence with us. I pray that you would even allow us to, to think back over the past week, even the past month. And Father, would you show us where you were with us, especially in the times where it didn't feel that way could we see a new paradigm? Father, could we see how you have faithfully walked with us? And as we see that activity, Father, would you bring us to the place where we could be aware of the love you have for us. That you saw our need and that you met it. 
And Father, when we see how much you love us, would you fill our hearts? Would you fill us to a place where we would be so aware of your love that all we could do is love others? In Jesus' name.